there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in international affairs or the nonprofit world and mission-driven work, then this is the episode for you because my next guest lives in the Middle East and works for a global humanitarian organization that is responding to the needs of civilians caught in the seemingly endless Syrian civil war. But before I introduce you to Rachel Sider, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week, and it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful next guest is Rachel Sider, a policy and advocacy advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council, also known as the NRC. Based in the Jordanian capital, Amman, Rachel is a member of the NRC's country management team and crisis management team, overseeing more than 900 staff across Syria and the region. Rachel has also served as an expert resource on international humanitarian law and the impact of national legislation interference of non-state actors, humanitarian access, and the protection of civilians. Rachel also serves as the NRC's lead spokeswoman for print and broadcast media, having appeared over 40 times, including on CNN and the BBC, as well as in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Rachel joined the NRC in Israel in August 2016, where she worked as the Gaza Advocacy Coordinator in the Palestinian Territory. Prior to joining the NRC, Rachel worked for another nonprofit for Oxfam Great Britain as a humanitarian policy advisor in northern Iraq. Rachel started her career in the humanitarian and nonprofit worlds, which we're going to be talking about. In particular, we're going to talk about how Rachel and I first met six years ago. Rachel, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm completely wired. So excited to be here. <laughs> I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> I was going to say, I know they have amazing coffee in the Middle East, and there is nothing like a fresh cup of Arabic coffee. Do you like Arabic coffee, Rachel? I do. Not usually first thing in the morning. That's a bit too startling for me, but definitely later in the day when I need a boost. Okay. Well, I was going to say there is only one problem that I keep running into when I drink it. Can you guess what that is? Hmm. No. What is it? I keep wanting to get that extra last drop. Uh-huh. 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 And invariably, it's one drop too much, and mm-hmm. I get a mouthful of coffee grounds. Oh, no, that's the worst. You're supposed to save that so that someone can read your fortune. Oh. Mm-hmm. And have you had yours read? I have. And it's been a while, but okay. it definitely projected some positive 
events hopefully happening in the next year or so. Nice. So fingers crossed. Okay, fingers yeah. crossed. I want to let our listeners know as well, Rachel, that while you are currently based in Amman, in the capital of Jordan, you're actually back in the U.S. right now in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where you're visiting your parents. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you so much for taking time away from your vacation to talk to me. No problem. More than happy to be here. I would love to kick off our conversation today, Rachel, by really trying to peel back the layers a little bit and maybe some of the mystique and perhaps even misunderstandings around what you do as the Norwegian Refugee Council's Syria Policy and Advocacy Advisor and why you are based in Jordan. So the main functions of my role are threefold. The first is to monitor and analyze the humanitarian situation in Syria from a number of different angles, looking at a couple of key humanitarian themes, including humanitarian access and the ability of people to be able to receive the assistance that they require, issues of protection, so whether people can fulfill their basic human rights, and changes and emerging trends when it comes to issues of displacement. That's one of the big areas of focus for me, and it's really about being as much of a knowledgeable uh, in-house expert as I can on what's happening in Syria at any given time. Then there are the more policy and advocacy elements. So a lot of the time that I spend is on taking that information and that analysis and using that to inform policy development. So trying to inform what is NRC's view or position on any number of events or issues that might be taking place in Syria and using those positions to then delineate what our strategy is when it comes to doing advocacy. So do we want to try to seek specific policy change? Do we want to try to react to something that's happening through public media work? Do we want to try to respond with a longer term report that better outlays these issues and creates an argument that will maybe lead to a policy shift down the road. So that's really the second area of focus for me. And then the third are the mechanics of that. So writing, preparing briefing papers, developing policy positions, advising on media lines, drafting messaging, and playing a number of different writing and communication functions within that. So that's really been the focus of my work with the NRC over the past two and a half years on Syria. Over this period of time, I've been based both in Jordan as well as in Syria. I've spent time in Damascus for our country operation there, working to support the response as it continues to grow in government-controlled areas. And I've also spent a fair amount of time traveling in other regional hubs in both Turkey and Lebanon, as well as in Iraq, because this area response has really become a regional response. And there are a number of different stakeholders, whether that's donor governments, policymakers, journalists that we have to deal with and interact with in all of these different locations. Wonderful. That was such a fantastic overview. Thank you so much. Could you pick any example, Rachel, of a policy that you were trying to advocate on behalf of, trying to influence donors or international organizations, in fact, all of the above, to adopt? 
There's one that's very global in its focus, which I can speak to, which is the annual renewal of a UN Security Council resolution number 2165, which basically authorizes cross-border assistance. So humanitarian aid delivered across Syria's borders into areas that are otherwise unreachable from government-controlled areas and allowing that assistance to be provided without the consent of the Syrian government. And this is a Security Council resolution that was initially adopted in 2014, and every year is up for renewal, and every year it gets harder and harder to mobilize the international community to renew the resolution because of some really strong opposition by a number of Security Council members, including Russia. In this past year, I was involved once again in the international campaign to mobilize around the renewal and to preserve as much of that initial resolution as possible. Now, what we saw in 2018-2019 was real unwillingness by certain member states to support the resolution in a 12-month duration and with the same border crossing points listed as in previous years. And those are some of the core elements of the resolution that allow for humanitarian assistance to be provided to whoever requires it, wherever they might be in the country. And this work required a lot of coordination between over a dozen international organizations, a common strategy with the United Nations that was obviously pushing for this from New York, an engagement with the member states of the Security Council that were seen to be leading on the resolution. So that was Germany, Belgium, and Kuwait. And what we saw was obviously a lot of need to have a coordinated strategy, but also to understand when it was best to do some public work on the issue to really shine the spotlight on the problem and to make sure that the media could be used as an effective tool in getting the diplomatic support that was required in the council. Now, Ultimately, the resolution was renewed both in 2018 as well as this year at the end of 2019, moving into early 2020. So that was a win, so to speak, for the humanitarian community and for organizations like NRC that had really been mobilizing on this. Unfortunately, however, this year, the campaign was a lot more frustrated than in previous years. And because of the nature of the conflict, it's gotten a lot harder to ask for the same things as we had in previous years. So we've seen a tailing in the length of the resolution and in the number of border crossing points which are listed. But nonetheless, there is some legal framework at the international level to allow for aid to still reach people who need it most in places like Idlib in northwest Syria and the northeast of Syria, which still has millions of displaced people that require assistance. Okay, great. That's very helpful. I was hoping, Rachel, that you could break down for our young listeners what it means in practice to be working in a coalition. You alluded to the other partners that you had to try to influence the different members of the Security Council to support UN Security Council Resolution 2165. I know from my experience, having worked at Mercy Corps, where you and I met, when I was vice president of policy, the coalition work is absolutely essential if NGOs are going to have any hope of influencing international institutions like the United Nations or any big donor governments. But it's kind of like herding cats. So Mm -hmm. can you give us a flavor of what it means to be trying to advocate as a coalition and just how unbelievably time-consuming it is with all of the different meetings you need to have and all the different 
tactics that you need to be employing to try mm-hmm. to move the needle. Yeah, it's an absolute nightmare at times, but it's absolutely critical approach to take when you're talking about some of these really big and sticky policy issues. You know, in my experience, there are a number of different factors to consider. And especially when it came to 2165, the most important thing and the reason a coalition was so important was because we needed to have one very consistent and very coherent message coming from every member of the humanitarian community, whether they were a Syrian NGO or an international NGO or a UN agency, as well as a member state. So the common message was the number one rationale for holding the same line. What we found was that it It was easy initially to hold on to the same message so long as the politics didn't really get in the way. Now, as the negotiations progressed, there were a number of different things that we had to consider in the coalition. The first one was we needed people to bring to the table evidence and examples to be able to substantiate the common messaging and the common position that we had developed. So everyone had to bring something to the table so that we could put together a big picture representation of why this issue was so important to all of us at the same time for the same reasons. The second thing that was really important was that we had to really delineate clearly roles and responsibilities and identify who was tasked with responding to or interacting with whom at different levels. So you have, you know, New York-based organizations that needed to be the focal points for liaising with diplomatic missions in New York. You had field-based organizations that were responsible for channeling evidence and arguments and messaging up to people in New York. So you had to have really clear roles and responsibilities. Third, you had to have coordination infrastructure. So you had to have you know these weekly calls where everyone was on the same phone call and tactics were discussed and strategy was agreed and organizations would sign up for specific functions and responsibilities. And you needed someone to coordinate all of that. And that was a real headache having to decide who that was because, of course, there are always internal politics and perceptions that come with one organization volunteering volunteering for a certain function over others. And I think fourth, there was an underlying need to manage the politics between different organizations. So even though we all have the same position and we're all asking for the same thing, we might have different motivations or we might deviate from that position at some point because the circumstances change. And that definitely was the case towards the end of the 2165 negotiations, where it was very clear that the position that we had all agreed on was no longer sustainable. And there started to be a breaking apart between different organizations or certain agencies being more willing to push a compromise than others, and it became harder and harder to hold that coalition together as one unit. So those were some of the elements that we dealt with. What I would say is it really helps to have one of these big coordination entities responsible for this. So in our case, it was Interaction, which is a DC-based forum that is intended to do exactly that, to manage coalitions and to build them and to provide the resources and infrastructure to allow them to succeed. And so they really hosted a lot of the day-to-day functions that were required to make a campaign like this possible. But I've also seen coalitions that fall apart because they don't have that infrastructure or because they don't have enough people to be able to make themselves available for you know coordination meetings to coordinate the coordination of the future coordination meetings. So there's a lot of 
inner workings and meetings that have to be established to then make future meetings more successful, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It does to me, but I hope our listeners are getting a sense here that there are a shitload of meetings when you're trying to work in a coalition. And what do you think the secret is, if there is one, Rachel, to actually being successful in mobilizing a coalition? Yeah. You know, for me, what's really important is that a lot of this is personality based and a lot of it is politics between one organization and another that are always there. And what's really important is that people set that aside for a minute and they kind of leave, park that outside the room. And the meetings that are established are very much with the sole objective of preserving as much humanitarian assistance for the people of Syria as possible. And I found that when people were reminded that that's the objective and that's why we're all here, at the end of the day, they can let go of either individual issues they might harbor or tensions between different organizations and hold true to that initial objective. That being said, I mean, not everyone operates that way, right? I mean, that's what keeps me motivated at the end of the day. And a lot of my peers, I would say, are in the same boat. But these issues are then elevated at such a high level in New York. I mean, at one point during these negotiations, you had Erdogan and Putin and Macron discussing these issues. So it's all nice and well if these policy and advocacy advisors can all agree that what's best for the people of Syria is one thing, but that often doesn't translate to the much higher echelons of power. One of the things that you mentioned Rachel, among the tactics that are often employed in coalition-based advocacy, or for that matter, with an individual organization's advocacy, is producing, compiling evidence, a report. I have the advantage of seeing your CV, your resume here, and you have at least half a dozen different publications that you have either co-authored or authored yourself. The most recent one that's listed here relates to Syria, specifically Syrians fleeing Turkey's military operations. It's entitled Desperate Measures. What was involved in producing that? So this was a joint initiative by NRC's Syria and Iraq teams and was something that we pulled together rather quickly in response to the rather sudden and completely unexpected Turkish military incursion in the northeast of Syria. And what it required was identifying and locating families that had been displaced by the military offensive in northeast Syria who remained displaced in the northeast in informal tented settlements and collective shelters and interviewing them to compile a series of case studies. That was a small component of the research, but the majority of the research was actually conducted in refugee camps that were hosting new arrivals from Syria in northern Iraq. We did a survey of over 200 new arrivals and over a dozen case studies looking more into the family dynamics and the displacement journey of some of those households. So the first thing that it required was a really clear research methodology, a survey that was developed with our monitoring and evaluation teams, but it also required access to the populations that were affected by the military operation. So we had to be able to reach people who were affected either by phone or in person in these camps to be able to hear from them directly. 
It also required that we then have clarity about why we wanted to understand the impact of the Turkish military operation in the first place. And when we initially did the research, we really were trying to understand the immediate effects that this had caused people when it came to having to cross the border through informal channels. So how did this impact upon the assets that they have available to them, their ability to reach safety, having to rely so much on smuggling routes? But then we also wanted to understand the longer term impact impact of having to flee the country, feeling tremendously uncertain about what may happen next. And so we had to have that clarity about, you know, why we wanted to study this and what it may affect down the road. And what we really wanted to be able to influence was both the exit policies and procedures of the self-administration, which is the entity that oversees and administrates parts of Northeast Syria, but also to engage with Turkey on some of its practices in that part of the country and to ensure that those who had fled to Iraq still had prospects for returning if they wished to do so down the road. The third thing that it really required was the ability to write super quickly and to produce a paper that was timely. So we wanted to get the paper out as soon after the military incursion as possible. You know, this had really stirred up a lot of interest and intrigue among both donor governments, and diplomats, as well as the media. And we wanted to seize upon that interest as much as we could to make sure that our messages were received and that the personal experiences of people were captured and included in that debate. And then I would say the last thing that it required was a commitment to making this information public and to managing the risks that come with producing a report that could have certain backlash, whether that's by Turkey because they felt offended by certain elements of the report or because it's shown the spotlight on some sensitive issues that may not be received well by certain authorities or by governments. So we had to really manage those risks, but we wanted to make the report public and we wanted to make sure that it was accessible and available to the media to be able to continue the discussions on this topic. So That led to a report that was published in the middle of December, which wasn't ideal timing when it comes to its proximity to Christmas, but it's given us a foundation that we can now work on in terms of more private advocacy down the road. Great. So how quickly did you have to turn that paper around, Rachel? We started the research at the end of November, and we had the report out by the 13th or 12th of December. So within three weeks, we had done all of the field research, written the report, had it styled, formatted, copy edited, and published. So were you working around the clock? We were working pretty hectically. I even flew to Iraq just to be in closer proximity to the work as it was playing out and really tried to get it out the door as quickly as possible. We also had simultaneous to the research that was being done, we had some media and communications colleagues that were gathering photos and video content and interviewing families to be able to make sure that the visual elements that would accompany the report were also done in time. And they were definitely working around the clock to edit and prepare everything for the final public launch. Well, I'm going to include a link to Desperate Measures so that if our listeners are curious to see what that final product looked like, I'm actually looking at it on my phone right now. They'll have the advantage of being able to do that. What is a typical day like for you, Rachel, when you're back in Jordan? Obviously, that period in early December of 2019 was super hectic, intense, and you actually ended up flying to Iraq. What is it like for you when you're back in Amman? Things are usually a bit more manageable. 
I spend all day typically in an office. So in a very comfortable open space, floor plan, corporate looking space where I try to spend a couple of hours every morning waiting through emails. Those are often emails that are either reports or analysis that are coming in from different analysis units that are monitoring displacement and conflict dynamics in Syria. I might be responding to requests from certain donors for information or follow-up questions that they might have. And typical management issues that are often debated and discussed over email. I then find myself very often pulled into a number of different meetings, which consume the majority of my day. Some of those are meetings that I specifically solicit. So for example, We've been involved in a number of discussions, both in Washington as well as in London, on the future of El Hol Camp, which is a displacement camp in northeast Syria. And so we have a pretty regular check-in internally to discuss the latest events in the camp, how that may affect our policy positions and the messaging that we're trying to push out, what we want to see done by the U.S. government. And that's a regular meeting that we have that brings together colleagues that are based in the field, that are based in D.C., and that are based in Jordan to really debate and discuss and to agree on a way forward. I'm also involved in some management meetings, which look at, you know, what are we doing in Syria? Are we still on track in terms of spending and budgeting and procurement of supplies? Do we need to do anything more for our staff in terms of human resources and duty of care to protect them in the middle of a new escalation in one part of the country or another? And I'm also usually on the phone, at least briefly, with a couple of either other NGOs, so my counterparts at Mercy Corps or Save the Children that are doing the same kind of work I'm doing. And we often check in and try to build coalitions or at least coordinate with one another to make sure that we're all working in the same direction. And then I try to carve out a couple of hours in the day for some writing. Sometimes that's simple, you know, updating of talking points for the media on a certain situation that we're monitoring and we might need to be prepared to react to. Sometimes it's writing a briefing note on humanitarian access. So we produce a monthly snapshot of NRC's experience when it comes to being able to access and operate in the country. And that requires a lot of both reflection on the trends that we're noticing, but also thought into how we want to articulate and describe those issues and write that up in a really concise five-page document. So I'll spend a couple of hours doing that. Usually have a couple of coffees in there to make sure that I'm well caffeinated. <laughs> and I'm always trying to get out of the office as much as I can to take a walk around the block or something like that. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I want to pick up on the coordination piece because before you moved to Jordan, you lived in Jerusalem where you worked as NRC's Gaza advocacy coordinator. How is an advocacy coordinator different or similar to a policy and advocacy advisor? So an advisor, at least within NRC, an advisor is a more senior role that plays a function that's both at the country office level. So you oversee the whole country, right? And you're advising senior management. So the country director, the head of programs, people who are responsible for the day-to-day -day delivery of programs and assistance in the country. And you're often playing a convening role among them to reflect on 
key questions. How are we doing? Are we doing things in the safest way possible? You're often the person that is posing critical questions and encouraging a reflection on broader policy issues. A coordinator is a more junior function that's often area specific. So in this case, I was exclusively focused on Gaza and I was helping pull together and support our advocacy on issues across Palestine. But I was not the one that was going to be calling the shots or making decisions or advising senior management. I was rather pulling together the information, drafting proposals, leading on a couple of projects that then would trickle up to those more in charge, so to speak. So in the case of Gaza, I was liaising with my counterparts at other NGOs, sharing information with them, debating issues and helping come up with proposals that might be channeled through a coalition, leading on Gaza-specific projects on a case-by-case basis, and then reporting to someone who was the advisor. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We're going to be talking in just a couple of minutes about your time as an undergrad, Rachel, at Middlebury College. But I am guessing that our listeners might be surprised to learn that you didn't study policy or advocacy or international humanitarian law, also known as IHL, while you were in college. So how did you learn it? I took a couple of classes at Middlebury at the time. So I took a class called Geopolitics of the Middle East, which touched a bit on development issues. I took a class called Geography of International Development, which looked specifically at questions of international development and how it relates to populations in areas that are more prone to natural disasters. So I got a taste of it there. And I took a couple political science courses that looked more at policymaking and the inner workings of government at the U.S. side of things. But a lot of it just came together rather intuitively through a series of extracurricular activities. So I was involved in a refugee resettlement program, tutoring English and helping people prepare for the civics test of the naturalization exam in Burlington, Vermont. And so I got a lot of exposure to how the U.S. resettlement program functions and the impact that that has on people who are going through the process. I did an internship the summer after my freshman year of college in D.C. for a lobby group that focuses on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where I was really immersed in what a function of a lobby group is, how they fundraise from both private and public sector donors, how they work with congressional districts at the local level, but also translate that into day-to-day engagement on Capitol Hill. So I was exposed to that element. And because it had a foreign policy focus, I was able to understand the connection between the domestic decision-making that happens in the U.S. and how it affects issues abroad. And then I think the third experience that was really formative was when I studied abroad in Jordan as a junior at the very onset of the Syrian refugee crisis. And I was volunteering and doing some thesis research, senior thesis research in Zatari refugee camp, which is close to the border with Syria. And I was watching people arrive by the thousands on a day-to-day basis. And I was truly immersed in the early days of a very haphazard and completely chaotic humanitarian response. There were obviously other experiences along the way, but no one sat down and explained to me how a humanitarian response should look 
or how it is typically organized. You know, there are huge structures that are established by the United Nations. I had to just pick those up. They all have crazy acronyms. I had to just kind of learn by doing and was sometimes thrown in the deep end, both as a volunteer, but definitely early in my first few years working both for Mercy Corps in Iraq, as well as in Iraq with Oxfam, where there was no one that was going to hold my hand and explain these things to me. I just had to listen and pick things up quickly and ask questions when I didn't understand something. And I think that got me pretty far. I probably would have benefited from a bit more specialized education at the onset. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of this is quite intuitive. And if you're someone who's willing to learn and who is curious, it's pretty easy to connect some of the textbook stuff with the real life experience. There are a couple of things that I want to pick up on there. And I think it's super interesting to hear how your extracurricular interests, which at the time you were involved in, whether it was the Somali Bantu Association where you volunteered doing your English tutoring for the women who were going to be taking the U.S. civics test, or it was doing your study abroad where you were working on your Arabic and preparing for your senior thesis, that your extracurricular interests were really sending you some very strong signals about where you might want to go when you graduated. Yeah, definitely. You know, it looks a lot more linear looking back on it, but you're right that there was a common thread that was predominantly about displacement. Like I was very curious and quite troubled by the fact that people had had to flee their homes and whether that was to another country or within a conflict zone, I definitely was intrigued by that. And I was clearly seeking out different opportunities to explore that further through exposure and volunteering and service, as well as through research and work. But it still didn't strike me when I was about to graduate from Middlebury, what that would look like in terms of a day-to-day practical career, right? I didn't understand that there was space dedicated to shaping humanitarian policy about these issues. I knew that there were programs intended to make sure that these people had access to education and healthcare and a roof over their heads. And I thought that that was really the only way to serve people, right? Was to make sure that they had these things and that service provision was something that anyone could deliver and you could design a program or a project and be a project manager. Or you could be on the grant side of things and you could be fundraising to make sure those programs happened. So I had like half the picture. And I don't think it really came together for me until I was a member of a team in DC, your team, that was focusing specifically on those issues, right? And it was like the perfect balance of I'd studied political science. I had this like political brain and it translated into these types of options for people who I had been working with on the ground. So it still took a while for some of those dots to be connected. But you're absolutely right that there were definitely signals along the way. And some of those came from professors or from the career services or from things I was just reading through my coursework. And I think if I'd been a bit more attuned to some of those signals from the onset, I would have connected the dots faster, but it still worked out in the end. (laughs) It absolutely Absolutely did. And I want to cross one more T before I pick up on something that you just mentioned. And that is, even though you studied and in your studies, you touched 
on some of the topics that relate to what you're doing now. We should let our listeners know that you learned a lot of what you are doing now on the job and you supplemented what you didn't know with training that you did either online or in person through different places like the International Committee of the Red Cross, the NRC had training that they gave you, and you also went to, or maybe this was online, the International Institute for Humanitarian Law as yeah. well. So yeah. there's a way for you to cobble this together and figure it out as you go along. Now, I want to pick up on the fact that when you graduated from Middlebury College with a major in international studies and a minor in Spanish, you didn't know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated. Not entirely. So I had been applying for nonprofit jobs. So I had narrowed it down to nonprofit sector and I was focused on a couple of like domestic, local nonprofits, and then a couple of international NGOs, including Mercy Corps, as well as the International Rescue Committee and Save the Children. But I thought that the only entry point was this grants management, grants officer type function, because those seem to be the only entry level jobs that I was seeing online. And I thought, okay, I just need a foot in the door. And then once I'm there, I can then pivot into either programming or policy and advocacy. But still policy and advocacy wasn't really on my radar. And so I was treading water in the sense that I was applying for a lot of things. I was getting interviews. I was offered a couple of opportunities for domestic nonprofit work, which I turned down. And so I was starting to figure it out, mostly through rejection, either myself or being rejected. And I was very resistant at the same time to a couple of things. One, I decided I didn't want to do the Peace Corps. That wasn't for me because I wanted an institutional experience. So I wanted to be in the field, but not on my own. I wanted to be as a member of a big organization that could support me and give me the structure that I needed. So I was resistant to that path. I was also very resistant to a lot of advice I had received, which was, look, you're going to have to move to DC and make yourself physically available to network, to have career conversations, to attend events at think tanks, or even to take up an unpaid internship. And I was very resistant to that because I thought that is below me. I don't need to do something. I don't need to be an intern. I've already done that. I need a working full-time paid job. So let me Uh, pick up on that because (laughs) do you remember how we met? It's been almost six years ago, right after you graduated. And if you do remember, I would love for you to just very quickly share that story, Rachel, because it is a great example of how being proactive can really open doors for young people. Yeah. So I was introduced to you by another Middlebury alum who had worked for Mercy Corps previously and a couple of other international NGOs in the humanitarian sector who then was working at Middlebury College. And I reached out to him. I sought his advice. We had a very long conversation. He said, look, there are a couple of people I think you should know. I don't very often you know, make these onward connections. I'm quite deliberate about when I do this, but you really should try to connect with Andrea. And it was hard to get a hold of you. I 
know you were a very busy lady, you still are. And we set up a couple calls, it didn't work out. And then we had the great pleasure of meeting in person. And I think that also really made a difference. You know, if we connected on the phone, I don't think it would have been the same exchange. And I think there were a couple of other factors that probably made it so that when we did sit down and talk, by that point, I'd had a lot more time to think. I had faced a lot more rejection and I had a bit more clarity about what I wanted. But I was also getting to the point where I was willing to accept advice that I hadn't previously been listening to that other people had given me. And it also so happened that your team was very conveniently looking for an intern at the time. Yes. And to pick up the story there, When I started hearing more about you and really, I think, getting the vibe, right? Because you're sitting right across from me. You're a very passionate person. You were determined. You wanted to get to the Middle East. You wanted to be on the ground. You wanted to be in the field. It was like the dots started getting connected in my head. I could tell, as our listeners can, how articulate you are and bright and Having your background where you studied Arabic and knowing that we did have this intern on the policy and advocacy team that wasn't working out, that I said to you, I really think you need to talk to Carrie Diener because she is managing our Middle East work, leading our Middle East advocacy, and I bet she would love to have someone like you working with her. So let's fast forward. Rachel took the job. She was obviously extraordinary. And we really pushed as a team in DC for our field team in Iraq to bring Rachel on board to be a point person for Mercy Corps on the ground in northern Iraq to help us develop more pointed advocacy talking points and policy recommendations to help us in our work there. What advice do you have for undergrads, Rachel, or for recent grads who think they may want to get into this type of work? How should they go about trying to break into it? I would say the alumni connection are extremely valuable. And don't underestimate the advice that people are giving you and sincerely reflect on it because they have obviously reached those perspectives, having had a lot more experience than you. So reach out in your alumni network to people who have careers that intrigue you, connect with them, be curious, be open to receiving advice from them. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is to be clear on what you don't want and to not even waste time applying for jobs or pursuing opportunities that you know at the end of the day you wouldn't accept anyways. And I think I spent a lot of time applying for things because I felt like I was being productive. And sure, it was good practice to interview for things and to go through a process and then maybe not complete the whole process. But It was not helping me towards my ultimate goal, which was getting something that I was excited about and that was the right fit for me. And I think the third thing is if your personal circumstances allow, accept an opportunity, even if it seems like it's a bit more junior or it's an internship or the the benefits aren't as great. If you can find a way to make that work, you know, what I think really paid off is no, I wasn't a paid intern or I didn't have a paying job, but that internship with Andrea's team 
it brought with it a whole wealth of support and advice. I got real experience. I was drafting briefs. I was learning how to write with humanitarian policy issues at the center. I had people that could vouch for me in the references process. And I had people who ultimately were big champions for me when I was in the final stages of getting some job offers. So that wouldn't have been achieved if I had been sitting at home, still applying for things and refusing to take the unpaid internship path. And it's also translated to some professional relationships, which still exist today. Absolutely. And I would add to that persistence because Mm. I do remember, and I feel so awful now hearing you relay to me that I was so hard to get a hold of. That makes me feel badly. No, Um, no, no, but I'm, but I think that's part of the reality that what our young listeners are going to be dealing with busy professionals whose heart may be in the right place, but because we're dealing with requests, I mean, at that point, I could say I was getting anywhere from three to five requests every week for people to talk to mm. me, to meet with me. And I really wanted to do it. And fortunately, Rachel and I ended up at the same event and she pigeonholed me and made me make time and look where it got her. So you've got to do that too. Two final questions for you, Rachel. Could you share a time in your professional life? When you really struggled, and I'm thinking of a time right now, (laughs) I'm sure you've had a handful of them, and how you persevered, and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple. I think the one that's probably most instructive for listeners is about a time when I had finished up with Mercy Corps, and I was then working for Oxfam in Iraq, so also in northern Iraq. And I'd gotten this great job and I was really excited. And because of the nature of humanitarian work, you have people that are cycling through very quickly. And I saw a couple of country directors come through very quickly. So I had three new bosses in the span of four months. And finally, when the more permanent ones settled in, I was halfway through finalizing a big report that we wanted to launch on issues of durable solutions for Iraqis. And what I came up against was a lot of opposition by my new manager to the idea, to the fact that we would have a public report. And what I quickly found was that he was not necessarily a great manager. He didn't really understand policy and advocacy very well. And a lot of his opposition was based on misunderstanding and a lack of real induction into what the issues are in the country and why a report like this would be so useful. And what it meant was that it led to large delays in the publication of the report. It led to a lot of rewriting and deliberation over whether it could be public or private. And it meant that when the report finally came out, I didn't have anyone launching it with me. It became a very solitary experience. And I found that the big lesson was that over the course of this process and through much of my early advocacy work with Oxfam there was that I wasn't bringing people with me. So I had a great idea. I had an awesome report. We'd done some really interesting research, but I wasn't able to bring the rest of the country team, my colleagues, with me on that journey of making it possible. And so it meant that I then faced a lot of struggles on my own, some of which were self 
created, if I'd put in the time, maybe from the very beginning to better introduce the concept, to get people on board and to create that buy-in and to address some of the misunderstanding, I would have gotten to a place where we were one team and where this was something that was the product of all of us. And I found that a couple of times through my work, which is that the advocacy element is sometimes misunderstood or it's not as tangible to people who are delivering tents and handing out hygiene items and food to people who are on the move, right? It seems like a far off pipe dream. And so you have to spend a lot of time educating and working with people and building relationships because you need them, right? I needed these team members to either get me information from the field, to proofread and validate some of the information in the report, to go with me to meetings where I was launching the report and engaging with decision makers on some of its content. And I didn't have them. So it just made the whole process a lot harder. And I think what it means is that especially if you are in a humanitarian space, you don't want to underestimate what quick turnover means in terms of relationship building and helping get the buy-in that you need for the type of work you're doing. If you're doing policy advocacy work, you don't want to underestimate the lack of experience or lack of insight people might have on what you do and your function and how you might be able to add value to what they're doing. And that requires a lot of investment. And I think the bigger lesson is just don't go it alone. Whether you're the only one on the team that has a certain function or not, you need the rest of the team to get you where you want to end up, even if it doesn't seem like it on the onset or even if you think you can do it yourself. And what I I didn't really grasp that that was the lesson until I then worked within a policy advocacy team with NRC on Gaza, where it was very clear that we had to function together for us to even see any impact. And I only would have learned that if I had worked within a policy team where I wasn't the one in charge, right? So it sometimes is helpful to not only be the head of a department, but to go back and situate yourself as a member of that department to get that other perspective. And you begin to understand the necessity of having a team that surrounds you, that gets your vision, but that can help you also execute it because you're not going to do it yourself. Oh my God. There is so much I love about that example, Rachel. Thank you so much for your candor and really taking us inside. And one of the other takeaways that I have from that story is that Rachel has already learned a lesson that it took me decades longer to learn. And that is the importance of being humble and not feeling like you know it all and mm. other people don't because the truth is somewhere in the middle and you will get much farther, much faster in your professional lives if you learn to bite your tongue and listen and learn a lot more than you may think you need to. Absolutely. Final question, Rachel. If you could go back to Middlebury and do it all over again. But based on the immense wisdom you already have right now, what advice would you give yourself? I would say 
I wouldn't do too much differently, to be honest. One thing I've always said is I should have studied geography. So for those of you that are still trying to figure out your major, don't underestimate geography because it's actually a really fascinating interdisciplinary topic that allows you to look at issues like human movement and displacement and their relationship with the land and with other actors that might be involved in triggering their movement and their mobility. So that was one thing I wish I'd studied differently, or at least taken a couple more geography courses. But on the career side, you know, I think looking back, the trajectory that I had was pretty solid. I think as we talked about earlier in the episode, I didn't always notice the glaring signposts that were marking my way. And if I picked up on those or I read into those a little bit more clearly, I may not have had to scramble towards the end of senior year and when I graduated without a job. And I could have maybe spent more of my senior year narrowing things down and cultivating relationships that would have translated to a job sooner. That being said, I think the other thing I would do differently is agree on your own timeline. So I was surrounded by peers that were accepting jobs in the fall of senior year, and then they kind of wrote out the rest of senior year you know, on a high. I felt really pressured that I was behind, that I wasn't good enough, that I missed the boat. But what I had to accept is, look, I'm choosing a very different sector and a very different path, and there is no recruiting timeline for this type of work. Things are always opening up and they're always closing and contracts can be short or long and you have no idea what is going to happen. So you really need to define your own timeline and try to work with that unpredictability as much as you can while recognizing that you're not going to have the same experience as peers that are, you know, going to work in the education sector or in finance and banking or and any other space, really, especially on the domestic side of things. If you're heading out to the field, it's a totally lawless experience. (laughs) Oh, what great wisdom, Rachel. And I'll tell you what I hear in that is the importance of having the courage of your convictions Mm -hmm. and trying to block out the noise to the best of your ability. Because if you listen to your heart and watch where you've been putting your free time a lot of times in those extracurricular activities, you can start to see the breadcrumbs that have been dropped. And not to say that that's necessarily going to lead you into a career where 20 years from now you'll still be there, but that doesn't matter. Because Your interests are probably going to change and evolve as you get older. What matters is where your interests are right now when you graduate. Follow that. Follow that path. Rachel, I have to tell you, I could not be any prouder if you were my own daughter. (laughs) You are (laughs) so remarkable. You have done so much with the opportunities, the doors that have been opened to you. I can't wait to see where you are five years from now, let alone 15 years from now. You are such a remarkable young woman, and I am so grateful for the opportunity to have played a tiny, tiny role in helping launch and having had the opportunity to give you a platform to share 
the incredible wisdom that you've already gotten in just a short period of time. Thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are just an awesome person. Thank you so much. I'm obviously extremely grateful to have had the opportunity to join you all today on the episode, but also to have made that early connection with you. And it was absolutely crucial and highly formative in my future career path. So thanks to you and to Carrie and everyone else at Mercy Corps who was involved. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.